sit down today with Mark Hamilton, the CEO and founder of San Francisco-based Hamilton Zanzi. In the 20 years that the company has been in existence, it has grown from 16 units to over 21,000. And Mark's perspective on the industry is as wide as the markets that his company serves. Our conversation goes into how the company was founded, as well as the impact the pandemic and other economic challenges have had on his business over the last year or so. While Mark is optimistic about the industry today, we do explore some headwinds that may shape how the real estate industry performs in the near term. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Mark, good afternoon. How are you? I'm good, Vlad. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Where do we find you today? My wife and I are at a house that we have in the Marin County countryside. Okay. In the Bay Area. Excellent. Not too far from the, not too far from the Golden Gate Bridge. Excellent. Is your office open or are you kind of uh, doing a hybrid model at this point? We're still work from home. People do go through the office in very limited fashion. I think a very high percentage of our office has been vaccinated, but we, you know, we obviously yeah. aren't, aren't really necessarily privy to what people are doing personally. And so uh, we're, we're mostly still working from home and then very small number of people self-paced through the office. It's accounting season. You know, we got K-1s to get out and the like. And so some, those people do go through the office a little got bit. Got it. Got it. Great. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about your business and, you know, the company that you have started. Sort of where, sure. where do you guys play in terms of both industry and geography? Sure. So I'll just give you a little uh, personal background and company history. The company was started, Hamilton Zans, between myself and Tony Zans, uh, 20 years ago. 20 years ago, coming up this fall. Um, and we are happy that we're able to celebrate our 20th year anniversary from, you know, in a, in a fairly positive way. Tony and I, uh, it was a crossroads for us. We, we both had significant real estate experience and careers already on board Okay. Um, at that point in time when we first uh, got to know each other in 2001. And he had something of a portfolio at that point in time in, in Oakland, where I had also uh, built a, a portfolio. I also had properties uh, in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, there was a meeting of the minds and uh, we just decided to, to kind of throw in together. And so it was Tony and I and one other person. Um, the first transaction we did in 2001 was a, a 16-unit property in kind of a transitional neighborhood in Oakland, but we liked it well enough and liked the real estate. Yeah. Uh, and that ended up being successful. And we, to that point in time, he had worked with his own friends and family as investors, primarily his father. And, and I had, you know, a small network of friends and family investors that, that I turned to when we had something that we wanted to buy. And so it was, you know, we started with a stable of maybe two or three dozen friends and family investors and, and just went from there. And as the years went by, we moved apart. We, we started buying properties outside of the Bay Area. And our okay. first market was Washington State. And just in a very gradual way, word of mouth, uh, getting referred by friends and family, getting referred from professionals that we work with, whether it's CPAs or lawyers or what have you. Uh, the client base has grown considerably year on year and is now closer to 1,500 investors. And okay. uh, we work with all of them without intermediaries. We, we, we've never hired uh, a broker-dealer to raise money for us. So these are all people with whom we have uh, an appropriate level of acquaintance by the time they invest with us. And, and and as far as friends and family groups go, some would probably tell you that it's that it's on the larger side, but we, you know, we know how to do 
We know how to do our securities according to statute by working with people with whom we have an acquaintance at the point in time that we agree to start working together. We're we're able to do it. We're able to do it this way. And so we've built, between the two of us, we probably had a portfolio of three to 400 units. Our first deal was 16 units. Fast forward. Last, in 2019, we closed to 650 million of apartment acquisitions. Okay. Last year, we didn't know what to expect. Yeah, right. You know, our volume went down, but we still had 450 million of acquisitions. And I think we, I think we acquired 450 million this year in the first quarter. So, you know, obviously the business has grown. We're in 29 metropolitan markets in 15 states. And we just try to follow markets that we think we can understand and opportunities that will provide the kind of returns that, that, that we need to have. Right. And, right. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's been a one day at a time journey and it's been good. Yeah. And during this time, Mark, you guys, have you only focused on multifamily or have you ventured into some, you know, other areas as well? Yeah, it's a good question, Vlad. Thank you. So from two, th- from 1985 to 2001, uh, I had never done anything that wasn't multifamily of some sort. And my career started with a duplex, a very rough and tumble duplex that my wife and I bought in what was then a fairly rugged neighborhood in San Francisco, but but of course, which has changed. And Tony and I did 16 units. And until 2008, we had never done anything that wasn't multifamily. In 2008, we had an opportunity to get a, pro- a commercial property in the Jack London Square neighborhood, right? Yeah, San Francisco, which we also thought was favorable. And uh, so we started a little uh, commercial business as kind of a kid, a kid brother to big sister. Yeah. And it's a company called Graham Street Real Real Estate. We have about a million square feet of commercial under management. And I'm going to stick my neck out and tell you we have about 14 assets. Those are in Colorado, Bay Area. We will buy commercial in the Bay Area and Seattle. And so it's a, it's a, it's a junior. It's a junior part of the organization, but one that we've had success in and, and like quite a bit. But it's the, the primary emphasis is still apartments. Sure, sure. And where are you in terms of the number of apartments you guys own own at this point? Twenty two thousand. Okay. Great, great, great. And so during this time, Mark, have you guys, you know, you've talked about some of the things you've done in the kind of urban core around Oakland and San Francisco and and you know elsewhere. Has your outlook always been sort of urban or have you done suburban? Do you have a preference at this point, one versus the other? From 1985 to probably 1996, it was essentially San Francisco only. And in the neighborhoods, not, not downtown, sure, sure, but sure. still, you know, San Francisco is a fairly densely built city and we were we were buying properties in neighborhoods that had some density. We weren't buying single-family homes. So uh, when we went to Oakland, same thing. Uh, and, and we started going over to, to Oakland because prices had, had gone up really far in San Francisco, which is great if you're holding, but it makes it harder if you're wanting to, to re-enter as a buyer. Yeah, Oakland, uh, same thing, did it again. Uh, along the way, we did a, we did a couple of deals uh, in two other Alameda County uh, cities. We did one in... Contra Costa County, and we did one in Sonoma County, uh, but for all intents and purposes, probably eighty percent, eighty to ninety percent of the activity um, portfolio was Oakland, and to a lesser extent, San Francisco. And that was the case uh, with Tony. And so we've always we've always avoided the total double A class, you know, double A plus class stuff because we 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 just feel it's hard to make that pay. You will definitely pay a very high ticket to get that kind of real estate. 
And so when we left urban markets and went to Washington State, uh, we went into suburban markets. Okay. Um, our first market was Spokane. We didn't buy anything in downtown Spokane. Our second market was the Puget Sound. Uh, we've owned in we've owned in Snohomish County. We've owned in Pierce and Thurston counties. We've never owned in King County, which is okay. yeah, interesting. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And that's and that's kind of that's kind of our thesis is that that we don't want to have to pay the super infill prices. Uh, we want we want there to be more opportunity for cash flow and appreciation and meat on the bone. Yeah. So we've always stayed on the cusp of the priciest stuff, and and we've really become more of a suburban operator in in recent years. We do have a couple of things in more downtown locations, but that's maybe one or two out of a portfolio of nearly a hundred buildings. And we also follow second cities and tertiary cities. You know, we like uh, we like Spokane when we were there. Uh, we're in Reno. We're in um, Eugene, Oregon. Yep. We've been in Albuquerque. Yeah, so we're just, you know, we're in Boise. You know, we're not going to go way out on the frontier, and we're not going to go somewhere where we can't build critical mass, but we like second and third cities, and we like the suburbs. Interesting, interesting, yeah. So you mentioned in your earlier statement that 2020 was kind of an upside-down year. Nobody knew what was going to happen, right? What were some of the lessons learned for you guys? A couple things. So I'll talk just a little bit about maybe what we expected and what didn't happen. Yeah. We thought operations were would really get strained. They got challenged for sure, but we didn't see massive collection problems in our portfolio. We didn't see ma- massive resetting of rents and we didn't see massive uh, vacancy. So we felt that 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 validated our preference to be kind of B plus to A minus. Um, a lot of the A double plus stuff had serious, serious compression in their rents. If it was in San Francisco or, or, or what have you, your rents might be down anywhere from 15 to 25%. Yeah, right. And, and stuff that's, that's, that's more rugged. You know, it's, it's very common for, for, for collections and that sort of a portfolio to be off by 15 to 25%. We were able to be on a middle path between those two with different results. We also thought that there could be pressure on prices, right? The prices might go down. Right. And so operations effectively held steady or in range of steady. Prices went up. If it was a five and a half cap market, uh, fourth quarter of 2019, it's a four and a half cap market today. It might be lower. Yeah. But just a move from a five and a half cap to a four and a half cap is a value event um, is a, is an appreciation event of more than twenty percent. So um, we weren't expecting that. Again, we thought there'd be pressure on prices. Um, we didn't see that. So those were those were surprising. What we saw at the properties, um, and what we to some extent anticipated in the early going, is that people really weren't going to want to move. In the Great Recession, the lesson that the intuition we had and the lesson we were able to take away from that is that if we met the market, took good care of the properties, took good care of the staff, and aimed to provide the most stable, um, continuous experience for our residents, then we were going to stay pretty close to full. Rents did come down some. Again, it wasn't a bloodletting. Uh, it was something we were able to to manage. And so we went in, we, we went in with that approach that we're going to do whatever we need to do to keep people in their homes. We're going to be helpful. Uh, we are going to take a different approach on rent increases during this period. 
Uh, we're going to give people slack as much as we can. Yeah. Um, if people wanted payment programs, you know, we asked people to seek us out for that. If, if households that had two incomes lost both incomes and they wanted to be released from their lease, we, we encouraged them to reach out, out to us for that. And so, you know, the strategy of just basically taking care and being conscientious really helped and really worked. And I don't know that our work is done. Um, but I do think that there's a, there's certainly a light at the end of the tunnel at this point, and you know it may be getting closer. Yeah, yeah, no, no, for sure. And so, with all that in 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 mind, what is your prognosis for? I mean, maybe this year is too early to sort of you know predict everything, right? But in terms of yeah. uh, just kind of what 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 you're seeing in terms of you know the movement in the in the industry, do you think we're we're over the worst? And where where do we go from here in the next you know eighteen months or so? Yeah, I do think we're over the worst. I don't want to be you know, too bright-eyed sure. about it, but I do think we're through the worst. We are, I, you know, I listened to an interview the other day with a uh, very distinguished uh, real estate economist whose name is Peter Lenneman. He works at, I believe he's affiliated with the Wharton School uh, Philadelphia. And his point of view is that the economic recovery will really start to take hold uh, in July and that it could be robust as early as July, or for it to be robust, it may be delayed until September. But he's definitely looking at a, a significant uh, third quarter trend of improvement in both the economy and jobs um, and the like. He also, in, in that interview, he he mentioned that, uh, that Jerome Powell was on record that it was already happening, right? And this was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So, um, you know, better minds than I have are looking at it that way. Uh, Lineman did also say in February of 2020, uh, there were 5 million people on unemployment. And while the headline number, and that was uh, analogous to 3.5% unemployed equaled 5 million jobless claims. He, the, the headline number for, for unemployment right now is between 6 and 7, but he feels that that underreports it. Um, because in his view, According to Bureau of Labor Statistics number, which is federal government, there are about 18 to 18 and a half million people filing fi filing jobless claims right now. So that that number is not in sharp focus. So we could have, you know, we could have as many as 13 million more people unemployed right now than we had 14 months ago. But in any event, that does seem to be gaining. And he also said that uh, that the that the downturn has 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 made it hard to measure um, rents because sure. uh, pe people who have to give concessions give concessions, but they don't necessarily take a reduction in rent. Um, and the other thing is that if if um, if rental activity is going down, um, is going down primarily in the you know the middle class to upper middle class sectors. You're, you're getting a lot of activity at a certain dollar value, whereas if the activity isn't taking place, you know, in, in more challenged areas, you got no numbers to report. And so it's hard to calibrate rents right now. Uh, but we have seen over the uh, course of the pandemic, and again, we're in 29 markets, but we have seen street rents, you know, which is the rent that you would charge somebody walking sure. in to rent an apartment. Yeah. We, we've seen those rise generally by about three and a half percent. And that's despite the fact that that we made a real effort to be conscientious and meet the market. And so so rents have gone up. 
Yeah, that, that was going to be my sort of follow up question. You know, not, notwithstanding what this, uh, you know, economist says, you know, what what do you see in your portfolio? Right? Are, are you seeing? Mm-hmm. Is it easier to rent an apartment? Are you seeing kind of rent stabilizing? Do you have to do concessions? Right? Um, the people that are applying, you know, what are you seeing on their applications? You know, just stuff like that. Yeah, I, I would say that the application strength is in line with our our general expe- expectations. Yeah, that concessions are not going to be something that are being used uh, abundantly in our portfolio. We're not a developer. You usually see, it's very common to see concessions when somebody's filling up an apartment complex for the first time. We're we're a little more infill. Um, Again, we're not urban infill, but we're, we're, we're always at least suburban infill. And ahead, what we see is that there's a figure that's been cited uh, in the press recently that between I'm going to stick my neck out and tell you between 18 and 20, for the population that is between 18, 32 years old, 52% of those people are living with parents. That is an all-time high um, wow. number. Yeah. It's been reported uh, a different way that out of norm, uh, I heard it reported on a conference at a conference about six weeks ago, that it's 5 million, you know, 5 million people above normal average. So significantly, there are people who are domiciling in a way right now that by historic behaviors is temporary. Yeah. And as they get jobs, get their feet under them, people will go out and rent a- apartments so that we think, you know, and the we certainly don't have an abundance or an oversupply uh, of housing in, That's in almost right. any market. Right. That's right. So we think that, um, that household formation numbers are going to be very strong for, uh, I would say, at least three years. It could be longer. Coming out of the Great Recession, household formation is on a real upslope basis, probably took place over, uh, I would say, at least six years yeah. between 2011 and 2017. Yeah. Uh, the numbers stayed strong until the pandemic, but I think the steepest part of that graph was probably a six-year period between 2011 and 2017. So we expect household formation uh, household formation is good for the for the multifamily industry. Yeah, and uh, Lineman also said that he thought that that we could see a recovery uh, that would easily last uh, three to four years. And I don't know that he's he's known for being super rosy. I think he's probably <laughs> right. he's going to be in the middle of the right. fairway right, on, right. on anything. And he said he thought interest rates could easily stay down for five to six years. And yep. he pointed out. The Fed funds rate went to zero in 2008 and didn't move off of zero until 2018. So I think those are the conditions. Those are the conditions we expect to see ahead. Yep. And you know, if there's a fly in the ointment, the fly in the ointment is the prices have gone up, uh, which is, you know, is good is a good news bad news thing. It's a good news thing if you have a portfolio and if you have assets. It's it presents a challenge if you have to go go out and buy yep. at compressed returns. Yeah. You know, told us about a you know few different trends here that I think are very interesting. Kind of given everything that you've seen over the last twenty four months, eighteen months or so, I would suggest that you know a time of challenge is also a time of opportunity, right? So, kind sure. of given given that landscape that you've just described, what does this mean for your company? How how do you guys um, you know think about the future? Do you think about maybe yeah. even you know heading into development? You know, potentially, where does your firm go? Well, I think we will continue to expand the food groups within our platform uh, incrementally. You know, I mentioned that we've been fiercely passionate uh, multifamily operators for more than 35 years. We've been engaged uh, suburban office operators for 13 years. 
that platform is still small. Uh, we did our first light industrial transaction last year. We're working on another one, so a different you know a different organization yeah, yep. may, may get spun up there. And we're you know we're just we're trying to be flexible. We're trying to look at opportunities then and look for opportunities that we think we can understand. I've always said that if that if you're in real estate, you're at least a closet developer. Right? I mean, we all <laughs> right. we all we all want to be developers, right? Right. Because we right. think it sounds so good. It's a hard business. It's yeah. a really hard business, and we've done a lot of development on our properties, a lot of uh, facilities creation, a lot of new construction on our properties. But we've never taken a piece of property that was just dirt and made it into a community. Right. And so I think we will likely uh, look at that. We have some things that we're looking at right now. And if we choose to go into that, we'll, we'll go about it the same way we always do, which is to to take a hard test drive, take small, you know, start small, start with something that we know we can be okay with, and then and then see if there's a, a portfolio or, or a platform that we can spin up. And I think that's how we'll approach opportunity. There could be more adaptive reuse opportunity that would come out of this if you see certain kind of urban infill hotels that get stressed or taken back in foreclosure. There might be residential conversion opportunity there. We've done a little bit of that before. There could be reuse of, you know, vacant office that might get converted into into multifamily. Right, so we'll look right. at adaptive reuse. We'll look at development and we'll just keep going downhill trying to find opportunities that allow us to see economic benefit in them and and that give us an opportunity to to talk with our investors about the next thing we might do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Given that we have a new administration in Washington, obviously that's a, that's a reset on on so many different levels. But one in particular that affects this industry could be around the ten thirty one exchanges. Of course, mm-hmm. you guys are a big proponent of that, is my understanding. So tell us, you know, what do you think the impact of that might be from from your vantage point? Okay, well, that's that's that's, a, that's certainly a question <laughs> I can answer. Right. We have yeah. a lot of experience with the ten thirty one exchange predating. You know, Tony and I were both familiar with it in different ways, predating the formation of Hamilton Zands. And since since the formation of Hamilton Zands, we've probably acquired 200 apartment communities. And I would tell you that probably at least 175 of those had an exchange involved in it one way or another. Okay. We do exchanges with our own partnerships when they make sense. We have clients who own real estate outright themselves as individuals who want to to work with us because in many cases they just want to retire. And so, you know, we've done we've done not only more than 150 exchanges transactionally. In many of those transactions there were multiple exchanges involved. And so I think it's very likely that we've done somewhere between 2 and 2 and 3,000 exchanges. Wow, okay. And so, you know, we we understand that business. We know how to how to make it work. We know the challenges and we know the benefits. And it, it certainly has been very helpful for us, but also for the clients we serve to, to give them a 1031 exchange uh, opportunities. And we do that on both the commercial and the, the multi-residential side. The 1031 is does have a spotlight on it right now. And it, it, it happens, I, I'm going to tell you, it, it's happened every four years since maybe 2008 and maybe sooner. The 1031 exchange has been around for 100 years. It went on to the books in 1921. It's been with us since. And it's been used to help investors 
it's being called a loophole, which I think is unfair and, and actually uh, unfortunate. It's, it's being portrayed by some as a windfall to the rich, which I think is also unfair and unfortunate. It is more precisely a tool that allows an investor to, to maintain investment continuity and give them more discretion of the timing within which they pay their capital sure. gains tax. And so I don't think that's cute or clever. I think it's technically correct. And, and what we've seen is that in, in the research that we've done, and we've done a fair amount of research and actually published a paper last month. It's worth, it's worth a look. It's a pretty easy read. It goes to about 10 to 12 pages. Uh, we co-authored it with CBRE, who's a prominent real estate firm, uh, international real sure, estate firm, but sure. also has a research arm. Um, and it's, it's, it's reflected or maybe even scaffolded very heavily on an academic paper called the Ling-Petrova paper, but that runs to about 80 pages of economic uh, analysis and narrative. Ours, is, again, we think ours is a very simple read, but in our research um, and in the Ling-Petrova research, uh, we were able to determine that a 1031 exchange investor is really only going to do it two or three times. So they'll do it, they'll extend their investment continuity during those years, and there will come a time during their lifetime for the vast majority of people that they elect to sell the property and pay their capital gains tax. That's beneficial for a few reasons. Obviously, they do end up paying their capital gains tax. We also learned as we went Industry figures for 1031 exchanges are that six out of seven people who enter a 1031 exchange, who open an exchange account with an accommodator, in fact, do not complete their exchange and end up paying their capital gains tax. So right away, uh, and again, I don't think this is clever, you can make an argument that having a 1031 option stimulates transactional activity, right? Because some number of those 85% wouldn't, wouldn't even bother if they knew straight up that they were going to have to pay their capital gains. Right. Having that option induces them to complete a transaction. And when a transaction gets completed, when a sale happens, in many jurisdictions, I, I would almost tell you, I would almost tell you that every city and or county in the United States benefits from a transactions tax by having by a transfer tax, by having an economic transaction take place right? By having a sale take place. So that's revenue at the local level. For those that don't complete their exchange, again, 85%, they're going to end up paying their taxes. If that's a capital gains event in their state, then the state wins. It is a capital, it is not only a capital gains event with the Internal Revenue Service, it's also a recapture event. So it's already highly efficient at generating income for municipal treasuries. It also generates income for municipal treasuries at, at least two other ways. It creates jobs. And again, this is not fanciful. This is not Chamber of Commerce rhetoric. It's in the paper, right? If you want to do a deep dive, get your hands on the Link Petrova paper and they will tell you about how it creates jobs, yep. which create payroll taxes, right? And how it creates spending on properties would not otherwise have taken place because a new owner has come in, is running an improvement campaign, and most often they are also adding additional investment capital. So you're producing, you're producing sales taxes, you're producing payroll taxes. And the last way that it works for public treasuries 
and I'm going to say states and the federal government, is that if I have a basis, if I buy a if I buy a million dollar apartment building, and I own it for nine years, and let's just pretend that we're only going to talk about straight line depreciation over a over a 27 and a half year life. Well, I will have depreciated that asset by about a third over over nine years. Yep. So that means my taxable basis has gone down. I've been using depreciation to shelter my income. Well, so if my if I if I put down a three hundred thousand dollar down payment when I started, my capital account now reflects two hundred thousand dollars. If I sell that property and I buy a I make a profit and I'm able to 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 take the profit and shelter it and go into a new acquisition and let's say I sell it for a million five so I and I and I retire a loan that at that point in time is six hundred thousand dollars instead of seven, and I take that. Let's just pretend that it's a net sale and that there are no closing costs. And so I have nine hundred thousand dollars. And so now I go out and buy a three million dollar um, apartment community. Well, guess what? My basis is still two hundred thousand dollars. So I'm generating more income, right? However, much much more of that income is now taxable because my sheltering capacity has gone down. And so you are generating more tax on distributions to states and the federal government by way of allowing people to have more discretion over investment continuity and having more ability to self-bank their investments. And so that's why we think it's good public policy. We've been able to use it effectively as an investment tool, but we think it's good public policy. Given the climate kind of going on, you know, in the country right now, do you think that it's uh, in danger of being repealed or I don't, I don't know what the right word, word here is, the 1031 exchange might go away? It's possible. And my best answer is is that those of us who want to see it maintained are not in a fail-safe position. Yeah. Um, it is, uh, once again, a political football. And I, I don't say that cynically. It's been on the landscape intermittently over the last 13 years at least. And even in 2017, it wasn't clear that the 1031 was going to be maintained, despite having a president who had made a career in real estate, right? It wasn't clear that it was going to be maintained because uh, uh, the Paul Ryan caucus, really, what they were really after was a flat tax code, a tax code that was as flat as possible and, and unburdened of special tax structures. And so they, they didn't necessarily want to give the 1031 a lot of love. And, and, I, and I will tell you that on the other side of the political aisle, I think very often misunderstands it. They hear about it. They hear about something that somebody did. You know, it gets reported in you know, the real estate trade papers sure. and they're like, but it doesn't mean that it's bad policy. Right, and it also doesn't mean that those people will forever escape paying taxes. Yeah. If you, you know, yeah. if you stay with it until you put it in your estate, you very likely will have uh, avoided capital gains tax. But then you're going to have then you're going to have inheritance tax, and the uh, the er- some of the inheritance tax benefits are probably going to be walked backward. Yeah. So we think it's a winner. We think it could be. We think it's good for the American economy. It's good for the American worker. It's good for small businesses. It's good for the small investor. And the biggest investors, you know, pension funds and the like, they don't they don't do 1031 exchanges, right? They just when they when they make a profit, they put it back in the pension fund and then they go down the hill and, and buy the next thing that they want to buy. Yeah. But this is this is really a main street. This is a tool that's used by Main Street. It's not really used that much by Wall Street. Yeah, yeah, interesting. 
we've chatted about your business. We chatted about sort of the impact of COVID. We chatted about some some of the things that are upcoming in in industry through you know, you know, law and that kind of stuff. As we close our conversation here, I want to turn a little bit sort of our eye towards towards the future. It has been said, you know, many times by everybody in the industry, probably when you hear somebody say this time it's different, just run away. <laughs> right? yeah, sure, sure. And in a way, this time it is different because it's a pandemic, I suppose, right? What are some things that you think are really going to shape the industry going forward? You know, what what are those things that will make it different in the in the next cycle? I would say um, probably three things, um, or the three the, the three things that come to mind first. Number one is technology, right? Real estate technology is capping, catching up with, with real estate. Real estate has never, never necessarily been the most technology saturated corner of the investment world. It, it's very often been, it's very often lagged. Yep. And it's, uh, it's very often been a slow adopter of technology or a slow evolver into a technology approach. So I think we will see technology. We're starting to see smart tech and fintech provide. Uh, tools uh, for various real estate operators that weren't there before. And, and so I do think that technology will have an effect. I think, secondly, pricing. Pricing is very different right now. Uh, and I think, uh, and again, this is a point that Lineman makes, I think pricing uh, ca- prices are likely to stay robust and rates of return low for some period of time. Yeah, You know, when, 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 when I started my my real estate career in the late '80s and early '90s, it was you know especially if you were buying uh, foreclosed properties or properties from the Resolution Trust Cup Trust Corp, you, you could buy mainstream real estate for a ten percent cap rate, you know, ten percent rate of return. Yeah, and then it went down. You know, interest rates, the economy stabilized, interest rates continued going down, and for a while you were able to buy at probably a seven. Um, then they went down some more. You know, then they went down to six, and then they went down to five, and now they're they're in the fours. I mean, we just we just sold something in the high threes, right? So, pricing is very likely to re- remain elevated, and rates of return are likely to remain compressed. And and Lineman, you know, Lineman speculates that it's the the new normal. I I don't know. I'll I'll know when we get there. Yeah. Um, rates are likely to to stay down, but the other thing I think is that inflation is still going to prove to be hard to anticipate and elusive. And again, this comes from Lineman, but you know, when we focus on core consumer CPI, we see that the governments of the world, despite intervention and despite stimulus, have been have been have really struggled to get uh, inflation even up to 2% on a on a sustained basis. They want that. They want some amount of inflation. It's been hard to get it. Yeah. His point is that, that we really haven't lacked appreciation, but where the appreciation has been has been in assets. And that if you count asset inflation, we've had we've had wild inflation since since the Great Recession and, and prior to the Great Recession. And and he makes the point that the reason for that is in the 70s, when we had runaway inflation, the finance and government apparatus didn't, didn't, probably didn't have the tools or the science to, to watch inflation the way, they, the, the way they might now. But the other thing he said that was different was that lenders were doing lots and lots and lots of consumer lending 
um, in the 70s. Right. And that con- consu- it was a runaway train of consumer lending. You know, it was very easy to, t- to get a, some kind of a loan between two and 10,000 bucks and then use it for whatever you wanted to use it for, whether it was your home, sure. a swimming pool, yep. you know, you're going to take a fancy trip, one thing or another. And then consumer prices exploded because of that. That has been different. Consumer spending has not done that, has not gone off like that since the 70s, but rather with all the capital, with these massively larger amounts of capital in the market, what you've seen is you've seen that capital competing for returns. And following in tandem with dropping interest rates, capital has 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 worked harder and harder and harder to get returns. And when you and when you work harder to get returns, you pay more money, which drives returns down further. Right. Right. And right. so it's been it's been a race to the bottom on returns. And I just think that um, I think technology is going to have an influence. I think I certainly think that pricing is going to have an influence. And I think that uh, inflation and and household formation are going to be on the other wild cards that we're all paying attention to. Yeah. I think especially with inflation, what people forget about, and you just brought it up, it's, it's tied to consumer spending. And yes. So and so, if 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 we don't see consumer spending going up, it's highly unlikely that inflation will you know follow. You know, supply of uh, money into the market is just one one of the variables, right? Exactly. Other things have to happen, also, right? And well, it's also about where it goes. That's and, right. That's and, exactly and what right. The re- yeah. And the, what the recipient does with it. That's and right. And if it's used for consumer spending. You're going to see you're going to see more inflation on consumer goods. That's exactly so far right. we haven't so far we haven't seen that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, Mark, uh, as my final question, what do you look at on a daily basis to sort of you know read the tea leaves of the industry and kind of understand where where things are heading? Uh, are there certain indexes? Are there certain you know publications? How do how do you keep abreast of uh, all the things that uh, are valuable to you and your business? Well, you know, like all of us, we all have a box score. So everybody follows the stock market, and we all follow our brokerage accounts and uh, and all that. And we all we also follow interest rates very closely in our business. And then I think in terms of trend information, it becomes very much more specific to markets. It becomes specific to to information about collections. And, you know, those are the things that we follow uh, programmatically. You know, a number of people in our office will read the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal every day so that we stay abreast of the financial news. And then I think it actually becomes much more tactile um, and uh, particular and even asymmetric in our office to to what you're paying attention to. My job, I supervise our risk and uh, insurance platform, so I'm always going to be paying attention to that. I supervise our our capex platform. I'm always going to be paying attention to that. I also supervise our communications platform. Um, and so, but in terms of trend stuff, it's if I had to say one thing, yep. it's interest rates. If I had to say two things, it would be the things that that are about that are reporting on economic growth and business formation and then it's you know webinars and and interviews and and the like that seem like they're going to be relevant to what we're doing and and you can find the Lineman interview online it's uh Peter Lineman in conversation with Willie Walker from the lending firm Walker Dunlop and it was I believe it dropped April 15th and it's it's very conversational yep. yeah 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 
Excellent. Excellent. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It was great bet, learning Vlad. more about your business and sort of uh, the, the outlook of the, of the industry from, from your vantage point. Uh, stay safe and uh, yeah, best of luck. Thank you so much. It was good to talk to you and, and please let me know if we need to chat in the future. Thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. Stories like these help us shape our understanding of the industry. And we appreciate you taking the time to listen to it. Please follow us on any app where you get your podcasts and tell your colleagues about us. Thank you in helping us spread the word about our work and the industry that is changing the face of business.